It changed our lives. Everything is different. I have questioned everything about my life. I was supposed to be a dead man, and now I try to get up every morning and look at my wife and hug her and my kids differently. These are quotations from a handful of individuals after experiencing something big. What kind of experience would lead people to say things like that? Well, it was Thursday, January 15th, 2009, and 155 people were aboard U.S. Airways Flight 1549 flying from New York to Charlotte, North Carolina. Shortly after taking off from the runway, the airplane hit a flock of birds and both jet engines went out. The pilots flying the plane had 30 seconds to assess the situation to see if they could return back to LaGuardia Airport or maybe off to another airport. The captain flying the plane immediately decided the only option was to attempt a water landing on the Hudson River. They were successful, and it has been called the miracle on the Hudson. Within four minutes, crews came to rescue all 155 passengers out of what were frigid water temperatures on a cold and icy day in the middle of the winter in New York City. So what kind of experience leads people to say it changed our lives? Everything is different. I have questioned everything about my life. Or my favorite, I was supposed to be a dead man. And now I try to get up every morning and look at my wife differently and hug my kids differently. What kind of experience? A miracle. A miracle on water when you think you're going to die and then you don't. That's exactly what happens in the next story of Scripture that we're about to read from Matthew chapter 14. Instead of reading the whole thing like I normally do, and then give you some bullet points, we're going to walk through this story section by section, and then behind me are two simple questions I'm going to continually ask as we work through each couple verses. It's the story of Jesus walking on water. It is so familiar that I'm fearful that some of you will just be like, oh yeah, I know that one, and then tune me out. I hope and pray you don't. I do think that the experience of the passengers on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 back in January 2009, 10 years ago, had a deep, profound impact that changed many of their lives and perspectives about being grateful for life and being thankful for the heroic work of a captain. But friends, there is a much greater miracle in our text with a much more significant and lasting point that I believe will have a profound effect if you let it. So what can you learn about your life and about Jesus, and how do those two things intersect? Well, here's the big idea, if any of you just need the big idea of the text. It's about as simple as it gets. I kept trying to think of something more clever, but sometimes it's just not clever. It's simple and straightforward. Jesus is God. That's the point of this text. 
As we work through it, I think you're going to see it over and over again. Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the incarnate Son of God. He is fully human, fully God. And that is miraculous. And it changes everything. So let's start with verses 22 and 23. This is page 820 in the Black Bibles, if you're using those. We're in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to the end of the chapter, and we're going to work through it section by section. So first, 22 and 23, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. We'll pause here to answer these two questions. What does this have to do with us, and what does this tell us about Jesus? What can we learn about both of these things? And a couple things to make sure we're all on the same page first. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat. Immediately. Made them, compelled them. It's rather strong language, actually, in the original language here. He's forcing the disciples to get into the boat and go to the other side of the lake. Then Jesus dismissed the crowds. Why immediately send off the disciples and then dismiss the crowds? That is all answered last week's text. If you read earlier, you'll see that there was 5,000, what I believe, adult males, men, who were a hostile crowd that wanted to force Jesus to become their conquering political military ruler. He wanted nothing to do with that, and to not let them tempt the disciples to think that that's what he was about, he said, disciples, get away immediately, and he dismisses the crowds. If you want more on that, listen to last week's message and read the text and study the feeding of the 5,000. I recommend R.T. France's commentary of Matthew for some of these points. Now, in our text, it says that he dismissed the crowds, and then he went away to pray alone. If you look further up in our text, look at Matthew 14, verse 13. Right after John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, Jesus' good friend in ministry who baptized Jesus earlier in Matthew chapter 3, when he heard, Jesus heard about John the Baptist getting his head chopped off from Herod, Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But then crowds heard about him and interrupted his quiet time, his getting away. So immediately, I think we've got the first little lesson you can learn about your own life and about Jesus. Jesus is committed to alone time with the Father. Committed. Interruptions happen, and he said, nope, I'm still going to go to be alone with the Father. Last week, we talked about two possibilities as to why he's seeking this alone time. One clear possibility could be that he is mourning the death of John the Baptist. Another possibility is that the hostility is rising more and more. Every chapter in Matthew, it is only going to get more intense in terms of opposition against Jesus. When you find out your cousin and a prophet of the Lord who is on your team and that teammate gets his head chopped off, you might be thinking, they're coming for me next. And so he leaves, 
And he needs to be with the Father. He needs to find solace and strength. And then a third reason would just be because that's just what Jesus does. Jesus spends alone time with the Father repeatedly. This is not an aberration to his life. This is a normal part of Jesus' life. And so when Jesus gets interrupted, he's committed. He's perseverant. So what can you learn in your life? I think you and I, if we're going to say we're followers of Jesus and want to be more like Jesus, well, it should be obvious. We should commit ourselves to time of silence and solitude and prayer and alone time with the Father. This is a normal part of spiritual Christian faith ever since Christianity began. The great problem we have here today in 2019 is that we live in an age of digital distraction and constant interruption. In order for you to have quiet time, you might need to do what we try and encourage you to do every Sunday, which is actually turn your phone off. Maybe go without it for a week. Take a break. This is not the only hindrance, but it is one of the greater hindrances to our faith. Distraction. How can you think deeply about the things of God if you're constantly being interrupted and then you lose your train of thought? How can you pray for longer than a couple seconds, but hours like Jesus is doing as you're about to find out? Hours. With cell phones. How do you do that? I don't know. I don't know how you live with that thing in your pocket or in your purse and pray for hours if it's constantly dinging and buzzing and you're wondering, how do I get back to this person that needs my attention? Deal with the interruptions and stay committed and learn ways to discipline yourself to time of silence and solitude. Let's keep reading. Verses 24 to 26. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. They're a long way from the land, it says in verse 24. More than likely, based on my research of the size of this sea and where it says Gennesaret is later in the text, it seems like they're probably good three to four miles away from where Jesus originally dismissed them. So, a long way. Three to four miles. If you're like in a rowboat or sailboat, this is a good distance. It says in the text that they are being beaten by the waves and that the wind was against them. The language explains that this storm is actually used almost symbolically as being tormented by an evil spirit. It's the same language you'd use to talk about demon possession in other texts. And then notice the little detail that it's now the fourth watch of the night. And since you and I don't use that time metric system or whatever, you're wondering, what's the fourth watch of the night? And that's 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so if they can see Jesus, then it's more than likely closer to the latter end of that as the sun is starting to rise and it's not pitch black like it might be at 4 a.m. So this means that Jesus was praying from whenever he dismissed them all night until about 6 a.m. 
This is an all-nighter, friends. An all-night prayer time with the Father. This also means that the disciples have been fighting against raging storm all night. You ever been tired before? You ever do dumb things when you're tired? Well, maybe you'll relate a little bit more with what's going on with Peter in just a minute. You should also notice the text says that they're in a sea, and for a Jewish audience, which Matthew's audience is most definitely a Jewish audience, the sea was one of the greatest symbols of evil and chaos. In fact, they used the phrase ghosts. Did you catch that? They misidentified Jesus initially which is probably its own little lesson in and of itself, that we often think of Jesus one way. He's really something else. But they call him a ghost, and this term is used here and in Mark's gospel with the same story. So only in the story of Jesus walking on water is this phrase ghost used. It does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament, and it represents a superstitious belief that evil spirits lived in the sea And when people drowned, those spirits would come out and haunt those on the sea. They called Jesus one of those evil spirits. Oh, must be one of those ghosts. What can you learn about this text for your life and about Jesus? Well, I think that there's reason to believe that the language of Matthew in this story is to help you see not only its historicity, that this was a real true story, but at the same time has symbolic elements to say this is all of our stories. And so in that sense, do you ever feel like God is distant? Do you ever feel like he's afar away from you? Or furthermore, do you ever feel like you're in a storm and it feels like you're being tormented? How many of you are being tormented by your own soul? your own condemning thoughts of inadequacy, of failures, and beat yourself up again and again. What storms are in your life? Many of them can be internal. They could be external. How many of us feel like we're being surrounded by evil? You're like a little boat, and the chaos of the waters are raging around us. Systemic evil, society's evil. How many feel like you live in a land where people don't respect and love God and everyone else around me is like these raging waters against him? This story is to tell you, take heart. Literally, those are the words of Jesus. Take heart. Because God is in the storm. Jesus walks into it. God is in the very midst of it. I did wonder, why is Jesus walking on the water? Was it just quicker or more efficient or convenient? He doesn't do miracles to just show off. Take a catalog of all the miracles of Jesus. They're, they're not what you'd expect if you wanted to show off. Like He, he never like just seems to go around and zap stuff or fly all over the place or do things that you would see in superhero movies. He just doesn't do that kind of stuff. He feeds hungry people, loaves of bread, miraculously. He heals sick people, as we'll see at even the end of our text, again and again and again. His miracles often point to something. They're normally signs. The best way to think about the miracles of Jesus is like a sign. 
and you're on a path, and it's pointing you, here's the destination that you're headed, you're driving down the road, and there's like, oh, Chicago's this way. Okay, so I'm not going to go that way, I'm going to go this way. It's a sign. It's pointing somewhere. The miracles of Jesus are signs. In fact, John's gospel explicitly calls them signs. So what's the sign of Jesus walking on water? And this is what I said earlier. It's really one of those just simple, straightforward points. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Only Yahweh walks on the water. Did you catch Christie's reading earlier in the service? Psalm 77. The raging waters are afraid of God. When I consider your works and the wonders of what you've done, remember, this is the God who split the Red Sea. That God is in control over the waters. The waters are afraid of him, the psalmist says. And then there was that little line where it says that the footprints of God over the waters as he walks through the sea. Literally, God is walking through the water in Psalm 77. Or you could look up Job chapter 9, verse 5, and it talks about Yahweh treading on the waters. Treading, it's another word for walking, and so on and so forth. You can read throughout the Old Testament that it is only God, Yahweh, the one true God of the Israelite community and the people of the Abrahamic covenant. Those people believed that Yahweh was in complete control over all chaotic, evil waters. Therefore, Jesus is God in human flesh. He is Yahweh walking on the water. What should you learn about Jesus? He's God. And he's in the storm with us. He's not just God. He's also God-man. God is not far off. Even though you might feel like he's far off, he's with us. God with us is the incarnation. Even though you might feel like there's these raging waters, what's he going to do about it? He calms the storm because he has ultimate power over them. My friends, knowing that Jesus is God and he's in the storm with us, I mean, that makes a difference for everything and every storm and every trial that you will walk through. Look at verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So what should we learn? Take heart. Jesus is God. That's what it says, again, in our text. Take heart, don't be afraid. The most repeated command in the whole Bible, you add them all up, it is, do not be afraid. Old and New Testament, add them all up, Do not be afraid. Remember the text earlier that Kenny read for us? Matthew chapter 8, Jesus calming the storm. Don't be afraid. Take heart. Do not be afraid. Why? It is I. Some of you are going to like this alternate translation because the words literally are the same words used in the book of Exodus when God first gives his name to Moses in the burning bush. In the Greek, it reads... I am. Let that sink in. Take heart. I am. I am. He is the I am. Jesus is I am. He is Yahweh. That is what I am means. When I said Yahweh earlier, that's just the Hebrew word for I am. I will be who I will be. The eternality of God. He just is. He just exists. That's Jesus. 
walking on the water, and he says, take heart, because I am is here. Only Yahweh walks on the water, and only Yahweh is named Yahweh. And Jesus takes that description on himself as he's walking on the water. Next time a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door and says, Jesus is not God, read them this story and say, you're crazy. Read your Bible. I don't care which translation it is. Like, this is obvious. Jesus is God. 28 to 30 now. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. All right, I know that this story is familiar, but you guys got to just imagine for a minute. Jesus is walking on water. It's crazy. There are so many different attempts that people have given to say, well, he probably didn't really walk on water. You know, it might have been a big sandbar, and it just appeared like he was walking on water, or maybe he's really shallow, low tide, or maybe what was going on was that he was really walking on, you know, just the sand over on the shore, and because of all the mist, it just looked like he was walking on water, and it just goes on and on. I'm not buying any of them, if you didn't notice. (laughs) Jesus is walking on the water. And then Peter does it too. Again, different explanations have been given to say, well, maybe he was trying to walk on water and then as soon as he stepped on the boat, he sunk. No, no. The majority opinion, as you break down the language of this text and the history of interpretation of this text is that Peter literally walked on the water. Like he was successful and then obviously sank, but at first he was successful. So remember what I just said a few moments ago. In the Old Testament, who's the only person that is described as walking on water? Yahweh. But now Yahweh in human flesh, Jesus, and just a normal everyday human being, Peter, is walking on water. What sort of massive implications might that be for you and for me? How many of you have such low view of what it means to have the Spirit of God in your heart? How many of you are really not fully realizing that the very spirit of Jesus the Christ is in you if you have faith in him. You can do things like Jesus. You can be like him. And that's not just like his moral attributes and character. I'm not saying that you have full power that Jesus did. I'm saying that there's probably somewhere between you being exactly Jesus, fully God, fully man, and whatever sort of pathetic view a lot of us have of like, well, I just have, you know, a little spirit in me. Somewhere in between there is where we really are. And it's significant that Peter is walking on water, a human being. And it only happens because he says the word, come. It is so fascinating to see how many times miraculous things, supernatural, amazing things happen because Jesus speaks a word. Lord, if it's you, 
Command it. Speak it. The action that changes Peter from being a man that just sits in a boat to walking on water is the word come. One word. Again, have you grasped, grasped, wrestled with, recognized the power of the word of God? The word of Jesus Christ. What power it has. What power it could unleash if you would just so take time from our distracted, busy lives and listen to it. And let its power be unleashed in our hearts, our lives, our community, our world. I love what John MacArthur always says, it is a lion in a cage. All we need to do is open the cage and let the lion out. Let it roar. Notice that Peter is walking on water. And then he sinks. Why does he sink? Because of the winds. He saw the winds. And he was afraid of the winds. There's a comedian that when I was thinking about this, it's quite humorous to think about Peter walking on water. Like, as I'm saying it now, it's still like, really? Yeah, that's what I'm preaching today. Peter walked on water. A human being walked on water. And he got afraid of the winds. So there's a comedian that was talking about how spoiled the current generation is of people that have only known the modern technology that we have. And so they're sitting there on their phones and devices and computers, and they're like, come on, load! And the comedian says, it's going to space, give it a second, all right? I mean, we don't marvel at what's just right in front of us. Like, the other example he gave was flying on an airplane, and he was saying that there was this airplane that he was on, and there was Wi-Fi with high-speed internet on an airplane, which again, like, wow. And there was an announcement that the airplane lost all of its Wi-Fi and it wasn't going to work for the whole flight. And then there was just this big, oh, you know, this bemoaning sound grumbling throughout the airplane. And he's like, are you serious right now? You are on a chair in the air flying 30,000 feet. And you're worried about your Wi-Fi or having a little delay as you're on a runway? Like, we have so got accustomed to the marvel of human flight. And that's kind of what I was thinking about when I was reading this story. Peter! What? You're walking on water. Why are you not afraid to look down like, I'm walking on water. <laughs> like, how is that not f what f makes him afraid? It's the winds. The winds make him afraid. And notice the language. He saw the winds. Oh, what a lesson for you and for me. We take our eyes off of Jesus and we sink. You can be like Jesus only when you keep your eyes on Jesus. When you look at Jesus, what that means, to just try and really make this simple for all of us, it means when you look at your life and you start imagining, what kind of person do I want to be? What do I think that the best possible version of me looks like? You start to imagine everything that you can imagine about Jesus. And you start heading your life in that direction. Everything about him, everything about his values, his heart, his, his desires, everything about his actions. Fix your eyes on that. 
that version of you, that version of humanity, it is the greatest human being who has ever lived and walked on the earth and the water. That person is who we want to set our gaze upon. And the more that that is your vision and your goal and your trajectory, then the desires of your heart will be stirred longer. And what your heart wants, that's what you're going to do. So when you keep your eyes off of Jesus and you put it on some other version or some other reality of what it looks like to be a happy, successful, life-giving, full human being, whatever that other alternate reality is, and there's a lot of those, wealth, good looks, popularity, success, power, family, marriage, children, etc. There's some sort of thing like, if I get this, if I could be this kind of person, then I will be a fulfilled human being. Yet, Jesus says, I have come to give life and life to the full, abundantly. When we lose sight of Christ, then we will have our hearts directed toward the wrong desires, and we will sink. This is how this works. Peter sinks because he takes his eyes off Jesus and he gets scared of the wind. And he cries out, Lord, save me. Verses 33 to 30, 31 to 33. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. The wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The wind that he was so afraid of. Keep your eyes on the one who commands the wind and the waves. The winds just ceased. Oh, that's coincidence, right? Jesus gets into the boat and the winds and the waves cease. What can you learn about your life and about Jesus from verses 31 to 33? Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Cry out to Jesus to save you, and he saves. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this was especially an important detail for you to consider about your life. You need saved. Jesus saves. You need saved. Why do I need saved? Well, there are wind and waves. There are seas of evil and chaos all around you. If you're not aware of it, they're all around you, but they're also in you. And the reason why this world is so chaotic and evil is because each one of us have contributed to the great problem of sin and evil in this world. There's something off. Every day, you should be aware of it. There's something off in the world, and part of it is because something's off in here. We need saved as a human race because each of you individually needs saved. And Jesus saves. So cry to him, Jesus, save me. 
Immediately, he will reach down and he will save you with his righteous right hand. Immediately, he saves. Do I need to get cleaned up first? Do I need to start swimming closer to him? Do I need to figure out something? No, he saves immediately. By faith and faith alone, Jesus saves immediately. Does he need to give us a lecture first? No, no. Notice the text. He saves and then he speaks. He saves and then he corrects. Jesus saves and then he disciples. God saves the Israelites through the Red Sea and then he gives them the Ten Commandments. God saves and then he teaches. When your heart is warmed by a God who saves, you want to obey him. You'll have your heart melted by God who immediately reaches down and saves. Yeah, I'll get on board with that. That seems like a good God. Have you cried out, Lord, save me? And if not, why not? And if you've done it once, don't be afraid to do it every single day. Lord, save me. Notice the way our text teaches us that Jesus' rebuke is, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? He had little faith, but let's not beat him up too much. He had some. And what a lesson that even the littlest bit of faith can do mighty things that you would not even dream of if you keep thinking, well, I just don't have the faith of somebody else. Just a little bit will work. The reason that Peter walked on water was not because of his great faith. Isn't that obvious? It's because of the object of his faith, the God who he said, if it's you, then command and say the word. I don't care how weak your faith is. If it's on the right object, it holds, it saves, it's enough. So many of you, again, you're beating yourself up about your little bit of faith. That's good. Little bit of faith is good. We already read earlier in Matthew's gospel that when you're just a little tiny wick and it seems like your flame is about to go out, you just got a little bit of faith. He likes to fan the flame. Not blow it out, not a... But fan the flame. He will not break the bruised reed or the smoldering flax. A little bit of faith he can work with. But no faith and all doubt? Nothing. Jesus saves by speaking a word. And then he speaks a word of rebuke and correction. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did he doubt? And why would Jesus rebuke him for that? I don't know. Maybe because it was only a few hours ago that Jesus just fed 5,000 men with a few loaves? Like hours. We're talking about God just did something amazing in your life, and the very next moment you're like, I don't know, God, where are you? I mean, does this sound familiar to anybody? It sounds like every pastoral conversation I've ever had. This is us. We're so fickle. Don't look at Peter and be like, man, Peter's just kind of weak. No, Peter is every one of us. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and everyone in the boat 
worshipped him. What can you learn about Jesus from verse 33? He really is the Son of God. He really is Yahweh. He is God. I've taught on this before, but just as a quick little, make sure it's all clear. Son of God does not mean, so there's a God up in the heavens, and then he had a baby, and then now it's like he created another son, and now that's the, the son of God. That's not what son of God means. Son of God is a Hebrew idiom. Um, it's a phrase. It means that you are from the line of your father, and it's not just that you are the father, but you're so identified with the father that it's like what's his is yours, and yours is his, but you're two distinct people. Does that sound kind of like Trinitarian theology for any of you? You're not the Father, but everything that is the Father's is yours. That's what son of means. And that would have been your identity in a Jewish worldview. So that gets lost in us because we don't really think that way. We, we have an individualistic society. But remember, your identity as a person was, I am son of, and then you give your dad's name. My identity, who I am, all that I have is wrapped up in that person. So to say that he is the son of God means that everything that is God's is, is Jesus's. He really is God, but not the father, distinct from the father. And monotheists, Jewish men, are sitting in a boat and they're bowing down to Jesus, worshiping him. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Monotheists, meaning they only believe there's one God. And yet they're giving homage, they're bowing and giving respects to a human being that is in their boat. Jesus must be God. Do you guys get why I said the point of this text is Jesus is God? Let's read the last part. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. The emphasis, I think, in this text is a couple things. One, notice that the disciples called Jesus a ghost. They did not recognize him. But yet all of these people, many of them who are sick, did recognize Jesus. And it, I think, ends this unit and section to say, will you recognize Jesus as the Son of God? Furthermore, I want you to notice that all is used. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. And then the last line, and as many that touched the garment were made well. What you can learn from this text is that you need to recognize that Jesus is really God. And if you would be touched by him in any way, touched by him in this sermon, touched by him in your quiet times as you obey the word and say, yes, I want to be alone with the Father. When you get touched by God through Jesus Christ, he heals, he saves, he changes lives. And God wants to heal all of you. All, all, all. Every kind, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every ethnicity. Whatever way you would want to break out humanity into its different parts and all of our segregation and all of our divisions, he wants all. 
all of us need to touch Jesus and have Jesus touch us. It's very reminiscent, isn't it? The fringe of the garment, it's that little prayer shawl that Jewish rabbis would have worn. It's the end, it's like a little tassel. Think of like a rope kind of going around your waist and there's kind of these tassels hanging down. And so the fringe of his garments, these little tassels. And so they're touching those. And do you remember the story of the woman that was bleeding and bleeding and bleeding? And she's like, if I could just touch it. Well, now we're in Matthew chapter 14. And it's not just the exception. It's now becoming the norm. If anybody just touches him. If you get touched by Jesus, I have a feeling you're going to say something like this. It changed my life. Everything is different. I now question everything about my life. I was supposed to be a dead man, but now I try and get up every morning. And I look at my wife, and I look at my kids, and I just start hugging them differently. Have you been touched by Jesus? And do you have any desire to see the miracle, not of the Hudson River, but the miracle of Jesus walking on water touch others? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks for the clarity of your word, that you are a God who speaks to us, and that your word is power in and of itself. We thank you for that, God. It is a gift. It is a treasure. It is a treasure beyond all treasures here on this earth, and we want to be grateful that we have the opportunity every week here in this church to open your word and consider how it, it can be unleashed into our lives and touch us. And so we want to pray, God, that that's what you would do, that you would multiply the fruit of this one message to lives sitting in front of me, that the ripple effect of the drop of your word into their heart would change and transform everything about the way they think about their life, that nothing would be untouched by the message of Jesus, by the kingdom of God. I pray that everything would be up for grabs. God, I pray that we would be the kind of people that just give blank checks to God and say, God, any amount, whatever you want with my time, my money, my energy, my life, it is yours. You are good and your vision of the kingdom is good. It leads to life. It leads to joy. God, lead us to repentance. Help us to see that our Eyes have been wandering and they have been distracted by lesser gods and idols. Expose those idols and crush them so we can see and savor Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.